from depression to diabetes to obesity and addictions. Our medical problems are climbing and are now at epidemic rates. This is why I started this podcast, Your Health Transformed, to educate you, to teach you, so we can all learn how to combat these increasing medical problems and live well again and become transformed. I am your host, Dr. Franchelle Hamilton, bariatric surgeon, and have seen these medical problems and treated them firsthand. I am now on a journey to help transform health, not just band-aid it. So thank you for listening and going on this journey with me and all of my guests on Your Health Transformed. And today on our show, we are going to be discussing brain-driven weight loss. This is a very exciting topic for me, and we're going to be talking to Coach John, who has so much to say. So we're just going to jump right in because I could talk to him forever. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, John, Coach John. Thank you, and it's exciting to be here. And uh, I love the opportunity to chat with a with a medical professional. I think it's really interesting to, to hear your perspective and sharing conversation around that. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I like to have like a variety of different perspectives on the show, you know, because I'm very, um, I, I always like to see different perspectives and I like to educate the audience on different perspectives. So it's not always one-sided. And so I really like the name of what you're describing as your your kind of weight loss program, Brain Driven, because I have also used that that term and I've also used mindset driven weight loss, you know, because I feel like so much of it is in the brain or in the mind. So I'm really curious what that means to you and where did you come up with that, that name? Yeah, I I think I, as far as I can tell, I've coined the term. I don't know if anyone else uses that specific phrasing, but I, I mean, it's probably not unique to me, but really I wanted to shine a light on the fact that, you know, Yes, you know, what we eat and how we choose to be active or not will influence our our weight and health, but it's actually the brain that drives our decision making and our actions. And so what I've encountered and and I have my own my own story as well, losing over 100 pounds, but so many of our efforts to create weight loss um, and create change in our life really is ultimately what we're trying to do. It takes this outside in approach. But we miss or we fail to acknowledge that it's our internal environment, whether it's our emotions, our mindset, our psychology, um, the beliefs that we form, our habits that really most powerfully influence our behaviors and then ultimately our results. And, and you know, knowing how our brain works, like a lot of our actions take place at the subconscious or unconscious level. You know, the brain filters out a lot of things um, using a reticular activating system. So our our brain also has a propensity for forming habits from repeated behaviors. And so knowing like where these behaviors come from and how they line up to be in congruence with even like our sense of identity, this means that if we want to create permanent weight loss, we have to create permanent change. And we can really only create permanent change by establishing a new pattern of behaviors, new habits, a new sense of identity. And it's all made possible because the brain has this really cool property called neuroplasticity or the ability to rewire itself. Oh my gosh. I love what you're saying. I'm such a nerd and my like nerd radars are like going (laughs) off right now. It's funny because I just um, came on with a company called Fresh Tribe and we are essentially a weight loss. We do weight loss app, but it's purely neuro-based 
driven, very much what you're talking about. And so I would love for you to kind of educate everybody. Like I am very familiar with neuroplasticity, behavioral change, habit formation. I truly believe like the only way, like you were saying, for sustainable long-term weight loss change, like lifestyle, it has to be a lifestyle. The only way it can be a lifestyle if it becomes a habit. Very Mm -hmm. similar to what you were saying, like our brain has almost like slow and fast modes, like um, like automatic modes, like things that yeah. we do automatic, just like the, that neuroplasticity, that myelination in our brain. It's like a pathway that if you choose two pathways and your body is used to going down this pathway, that's automatic. Like it'll yes. automatically fire this direction all the time, whether it's mindless eating. I'm sitting at my desk, so I'm bored, so I'm going to automatically eat. At this yeah. point, if you do that often enough, a repeated behavior that you do often enough, it becomes an automatic habit. So the nice. only way to switch that out is to almost like reform a new pathway. So I'd love to get your feedback and if this is what you see or what you're thinking Absolutely. of. Yeah. You see, um, like our brain will automate a behavior that gets repeated as an efficiency thing. You know, imagine yep. if you had to think now about how to tie your shoes, maybe after you've been doing it for 30 years, like how do you function in day-to-day life? And so it's this really neat feature of our brain that it will automate behaviors that we repeat. Yep. Now, in order to form a habit, there's one really important um, aspect to it. And that is that it needs to actually be connected to positive emotions. So we've heard things like it takes 21 days to form a habit. Well, uh, of course, it's going to depend on the complexity of the habit or skill you're trying to learn. But 21 days is, you know, it's, it's a good starting point. But yeah. we do need, yeah, But like it could take 250 days. Correct. <laughs> but what we think about is, is when it gets connected to a positive emotion, because dopamine, which is that neurotransmitter that, that we obviously we feel pleasure when dopamine is elevated in the brain. That's we often don't think about it like a learning neurotransmitter, but that's really what it's doing is is and and it doesn't really matter if it's a quote unquote good or a bad habit. It's like if we repeat a behavior, if we mm-hmm. do a behavior and it gives us a surge in dopamine, Correct. we're likely to repeat the behavior. And so whether that's eating a bag of chips while watching Netflix, that right. teaches the brain something, or whether it's you know I went for a walk and I came back and I felt better because I did something active. Um, but the, the other thing I think about is like our brain, I try to understand like why behaviors happen, like things like self-sabotage. Why do we do yep. that? And the old model I think was to say, well, there's something wrong with you. There's a character flaw or a character mm-hmm. failing. And, I'm, and I think it's, you know what? That's not what this is. So let's look at it. I, I like to say all behavior makes sense. So it doesn't yeah. mean that all behavior is good or beneficial, but it always makes sense. So I go, let's try to understand why this behavior is happening. And then you know, the other part of it is, as we talk about so much of our behaviors automated, if we want to change a behavior, we actually have to start bringing it into our conscious awareness in order to actually yeah. create change. And I so agree. that can be something very simple. Like, for example, I have my clients take photos of their meals. Now, I do that because very often, you know, there's a resistance to tracking our food intake. You yeah. know, I don't want to weigh all my food. I don't want to count calories or things like that. But what that does is that activates the prefrontal cortex. It triggers conscious awareness when we go to eat. And it's not like you necessarily have to do that forever, but we start training our brain to take a photo and and, and become aware. Now, when we go to eat that food, we're going to be thinking, well, they might think my coach is going to see this photo. (laughs) There's that Mm -hmm. part of it. Um, But also just now they've they've done a conscious action in front of their food. They're now going to eat with more awareness and mindfulness than they would have before. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I'm not a huge fan of long-term tracking, which is what the whole diet industry was like mm, based mm. on, unfortunately, it's like 
track food, smart goals, like all these different things. And then when people don't hit whatever that goal is, that performance goal, then people are like, I'm a failure, I, you know, and have all these like shaming methodologies in yeah. their head. So I, I agree that there's a role for tracking initially, specifically for exactly what you're talking about. Like you have to bring some habits into awareness in order to be able to figure out the root of them and start treating them. So yeah. I think the where tracking comes in is specifically for awareness. So I 100% yeah. agree um, with that model. Yeah. And I would say I, so I really make compassion the core of what I do. And I think very often this is a misunderstood concept. And so I say, um, you know, like if I was to bump into you and you're halfway through a big old bag of chips. Now, if I was to come to you and say, well, Dr. Hamilton, uh, you know better than that. Why are you yeah. doing something so stupid? There's an innate emotional response. I want to hide the behavior. Not I want mm -hmm. to change the behavior, but I want to hide the behavior because of the feeling that was generated by the judgment. And so, yeah. and we look at how, but this is very often how we've tried to create change, try to coerce people through judgment and shame. <laughs> I agree. That's so like typical medical tradition here in the United States, by the way, right. too. Like, yeah. stop doing and that or you're going to die. And you're like, um, okay. I'm just, yeah, I'm just literally going to hide the behavior. Now, on the yeah. other hand, if I was to say, oh, well, you know what? You're halfway through the bag. You might as well finish the whole thing. Well, that's called enabling, right? It doesn't move you forward. Yeah. And so then we go, okay, the middle ground is compassion where we go, okay, here you are. You're halfway through a bag of chips. Let's see if we can figure out how you got here without judging mm -hmm. you. In Correct. other words, what what are the what what's the like sort of chain of events that got us there? Yeah. So when we're able to, I almost call it like wrestle with our demons in the light. If we're able to bring our yep. struggles into the light, look at them, observe them, like this curious, compassionate observer, we're much more likely to be able to create change than if we create shame and encourage hiding of behaviors. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent with that. Uh, and yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. I I call it finding like the root of the problem, but it's very hmm. similar to this, like. What drove you to this particular behavior? Was it a bad day at work? Was it yeah. stress induced? Was it like what? What was it a craving? Like a true craving of some sort? Are you? Which means are you missing like some vitamin supplementation? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? There, there's so many reasons for behavior. So I love your idea of trying to figure out like essentially the root cause. Like take it back a few steps. Yeah. And then you, you mentioned something really interesting a bit earlier, and I have kind of an analogy that I like. And it's this idea of like when we go to create change, we're inevitably going to fall into old behavior patterns. Yep. And it doesn't mean that we're a failure. It's like when our brain gets tired, it will go to the most familiar behavior pattern. Exactly. It's not a, so we want to step away from this idea that I'm, I'm weak. I have no discipline or no willpower or whatever. And I'm like, no, your brain got tired. You reached the point of decision fatigue. Um, because that, that is a thing. Correct. And then it defaulted back to the the pattern of behavior that was more deeply wired. So it's like if for, right. if for 30 years, you've been eating, you know, boredom eating, stress eating, just emotional eating. In two weeks, you're not going to unwire that entirely from your right. brain. Exactly. And so it's like, if you've ever driven, like I live in, in Alberta, which is north of Montana, and it's kind of, uh, we call it, we can call it Texas of Canada. So if you've ever driven like between, <laughs> between a field, you know, a couple of fields and this, this sort of rutted like dirt road, it's yeah. kind of bumpy. Well, whenever you go to drive between those fields, there's these well-worn grooves that you're going to end up, yeah, you know, sort correct. of getting pulled into. And when we try and create new behaviors, it's kind of like me saying, well, I want you to steer up onto the ridges and try to flatten out those ridges. Correct. Well, along the way, you hit a little muddy patch, slip, whoops, you're back into the old grooves that are really well-worn. Yeah. Now, 
that's so if we know that that's inevitable and it's going to happen, we don't have to get so down on ourselves. And it's like when it happens, ah, right? It's like, okay, it happened, it's not ideal, cool, but it doesn't mean you're a bad person, it just means your brain went back to an old behavior pattern because your brain got tired. Yeah. And I love that analogy, by the way. That's a great, that's like perfect analogy because that's what happens, right? We've created all these automatic default behaviors because like you said, the brain has to function and process so much. So it oftentimes creates default behavior so it can continue to function on high levels and other things. And so it's almost like an easy way out for the brain. Like let's just create these, these defaults in our brain and 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 going to those is is normal. It's a normal response. It's not a failure, just like you said. Well, let's say you had a stressful day at work, and then you ate some chocolate, well, yep. and then bingo, you hit, got hit with dopamine. So your brain goes, "I feel stressed. I eat chocolate. Mm-hmm. I feel better." Your brain just yeah. learned something there. Now let's say, and, and it was a really easy and inexpensive solution because chocolate's yep. pretty abundant and, and and cheap. So then the next time you're stressed, you're like, oh man, I just really need some chocolate. You're actually looking for stress relief, but your brain remembered one ate chocolate, it made me feel better and so on. Correct. Now let's say the byproduct of that type of behavior is, okay, now you start to gain weight and you go, uh-oh, something's wrong. Like this, I, I, and so you go, I have to cut up chocolate. That's it. I'm swearing yeah. off chocolate because it's the problem. Well, your brain goes, hang on a sec. That was a solution to a problem. And yeah. you just took that away without actually addressing the real problem. So then we start to develop a craving. Yeah. And eventually it feels like, well, the only way this craving is going to go away is if I satisfy it, then you eat chocolate and bingo, you're right back into number one. I feel uncomfortable. I eat chocolate. I get relief. Yeah. Now, kind of the third piece of this puzzle is we then create a story or a narrative to explain our behavior. So we might say something like, I guess I'm a chocoholic. So that's (laughs) how we explain our behaviors is through this story. Now, if we think about what a belief is, a belief is maybe just a thought that we accept to be true. And then as we accept to be true, our brain will actually organize information to confirm it. It's called confirmation bias. And so then next time you see chocolate, your brain goes, hey, you're a chocoholic. What does a chocoholic do? Oh, they eat chocolate. Correct. And so we, our brain pushes us to repeat behaviors to confirm that belief to be true. And so we, we, I think that that piece of the puzzle really often gets missed, yeah. this how our, how our beliefs and our sense of identity actually drive right. our behavior as well. I know. I 100% agree. I call, I, I've caught that in my books and stuff like labels, right? Like, yeah. how are you labeling yourself? Like, even people who come to me and label themselves, um, it, they come and say, I'm a diabetic. They start labeling themselves as their medical condition or what somebody else had right, told them. Yeah. And I'm like, no, this is not who you are. Why are you relating to this label? This is just a label, like some random, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like an external label. Like there are so many things that you need to identify with that's not that. I feel like that's part of this self-sabotage thing. And you can confirm mm. Um, your beliefs and what you're seeing in your practice that once you almost identify with this label or what, you know, this confirmation, and then you start yeah. acting that out, to yeah. me, that's almost like a form of self-sabotage, you know? And, yeah. So self-sabotage is a super interesting phenomenon. And and for, for the record, we didn't really dive much into my backstory, but I, I used to be morbidly obese. Um, I've lost over hundred pounds. I used to be a binge eating food addict and a self-hating, you know, self-loathing person. And yeah. so I look at where I am now and it's like, it's almost like I was a different person. And part of that was driven by trauma and not everyone has trauma in there, but I, I have trauma in my backstory and that that's how I ended up being a binge eating food addict. But all, all of this to, to say, um, when I was trying to create change, 
I was trying to force external change. In other words, I was trying to impose all of these rules and restrictions on me, but I wasn't addressing the inner the inner root cause here, my sense yeah. of identity. And so right. whenever I would start to get too far away from who my sense of identity was, my brain would, my primal brain would go, ah, alert, alert, alert. We're getting into the danger zone. We're getting to unfamiliar, unknown, uncomfortable, resort back to old behaviors. And that's kind of what self-sabotage is, is our brain trying to protect who it sees us to be. Right. And, and so it's like, if we're going to, because you know the, the problem we want to solve is, well, how do we create how to create permanent change. And the old method of, you know, just white knuckle your way until you get to your goal weight, like clearly doesn't work. Clearly. And so we have to, we have to almost like slide it under the radar of your primal brain. So we have to introduce change in, in sort of incrementally small components where it's mm-hmm. not too much and it doesn't trigger that primal survival defensive response. And so I like to take what I call like a nutrition progression approach. So let's say to, to, to contrast that, a diet is like, I'm going to impose 20 rules on you starting today. Like yeah. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. You have Correct. to do this. You have to do that, and so on. Yeah. 100% guarantee you're going to fail. Long term. Like, <laughs> right. Because it's too big a leap. It's too much of a departure from who you presently are. Yeah. And so your brain is going to push you back. Whereas if you start with like one small behavior, and I, I encourage this concept called CMG or can't miss goals. So I say, let's set a behavior that's almost so small. There's there's like no way you can miss it because Correct. what determines the success of forming a habit is the repeatability of the behavior. And once the behavior pattern is established, you can always expand it, nurture it and grow it. Correct. So I would say, for example, don't set your maybe if you if you're you know averaging 2000 steps a day and you're quite sedentary. Don't make your goal 10,000 steps a day. Exactly. Because you're not going to hit that. Or 150 minutes of exercise a week, right? Like all these like guidelines. There's all these guidelines here in the US, you know, ADA (laughs) guidelines, nutritional guidelines. And and that's what they are. And I'm like, this is not realistic for the average person who doesn't, you know, who is struggling with this in the first place. So I 100% agree. So you just set it to like, you know, I made mine 5,000 steps because I, yeah. I, I I got a tracker and I was like, okay, so I'm doing an I was doing maybe an average of like four or 4,200 steps a day. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to set my CMD to 5,000 steps. It means I had to do a little bit of conscious activity to make sure I hit that 5,000. But then eventually, like over time, what happened is my average started to grow and, and pretty soon it became, well, how soon can I hit 5,000? And then, you know, so then the average became more like 8,300. Mm-hmm. But I just kept that CMG because the, there's something about like developing a winning streak. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an old Jerry Seinfeld trick. So Jerry Seinfeld, you know, obviously became one of the best and most famous comedians in the world. Well, his thing was um, he had to write a joke every day, just one joke. And it didn't matter, good, bad, ugly, whatever. He had to write a joke every day. And every time he did it, he put a big red X on this wall calendar and he started to form this chain of like red X's. And the idea was don't break the chain. So yeah. once you get the streak going, you you keep it going. And yeah. uh, that's, I think, a, uh, like how I encourage people to, to sort of cultivate and develop a habit is this concept of CMG or can't miss goal. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I actually wanted to dig into your story a little bit in the yeah. sense that my question was, did you, how did you get to where you are now with this brain driven weight mm, loss? Yeah. Is it because <clears throat> you went through it or did you go through it and had somebody kind of help you and train you or oh, how I very did much this? Had help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and I would say, and, and, so, because people will see the before and after photos, right? And they go, oh my gosh, like I, whatever as you did, I want to I want to do that. And it's yeah. like, well, hang on a sec. So uh, when I was 29, I was nearly beaten to death when I was living in South Africa. And mm-hmm. 
it, you know, nothing really prepares us for that sort of being violently traumatized like that. And so yeah. my response was to turn to food, not, not consciously, but it was again, a learned response. When I eat food, I can sort of make this dis- uncomfortable feeling disappear temporarily. Yeah. But the, the byproduct of that behavior pattern was obviously my weight ballooned. So you had like trauma and stress and binge eating and so on. And so for about five or six years, I tried just about every diet under the sun. You know, I'll try, you know, paleo or I'll go primal or I'll go vegan or raw food vegan or then I go, yeah. you know, and so on and all these different approaches. Um, but none of them were addressing really the root cause, which was I had really developed this disordered relationship with myself and my body. And it was when I hired a coach who didn't treat me the way I expected to be treated. So I thought that he would treat me like garbage because I was basically treating myself like that. I was so angry at myself. I was angry at my body because I felt like my body had betrayed me because I went from being athletic to being obese. And so I was projecting my own feelings of inadequacy onto my coach and assuming that he was going to treat me this way and he was going to talk down to me and he was going to shame me for my screw ups and beat me up, you know, mentally or that sort of thing. And he did. He showed me compassion. And that was a really new concept for me at that point in time. I was in my mid thirties. I'm 40 now. Men don't really talk about compassion very much. And so for him to model that behavior, every time I would screw up, he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk down to me. And so he really modeled for me the behavior that he was trying to get me to start modeling for myself. Yeah. And, you know, he asked me this question one time, he said, and I I say it's the question that changed my life. He said, you know, Jonathan, if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big question. (laughs) That one really shook me up because- The truth is, I, I was I was not on the list. It wasn't that I was near the bottom. It was I was not on the list. Yeah. So, so now, what he'd done is he'd triggered, the, like, opened my mind to this realization: like, I have to learn to love myself. But what does that even look like? Yeah. like especially as a male, how do we don't talk about stuff like this? Like, how right. do we even start? So for me, it began with a simple behavior. So really, I, I look back and I realize what it was was actually changing a belief. So I had this belief that I was worthless and yeah, that exactly. I was unlovable and so on. Yeah, And so um, brushing my teeth every day became an act of self-care. So a very small action, but it was an action, an act of self-care that was contrary to this belief that I'm not worthy of care yeah. or love and so on. And then, then it became drinking, you know, 500 mils or, or like two cups of water first thing in the morning to hydrate another little act of self-care. So we began chipping away at this belief, this underlying belief that, that I wasn't worthy. And so it's this really... It's a totally like we didn't. I, I thought the approach would be like you know, tell me to eat more vegetables and and, and exactly right exactly. But it exactly. was like let's start tackling this at at the real the real root of the issue here. And as I started to practice self care and I started yep. to change this belief that I'm not this unlovable monster, um, my I stopped turning to food so much yep. to escape the uncomfortable emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great. Like you said it better than I could. I talk a lot about this too, kind of in my model um, of my S's. One of the first one is self-awareness, which every I feel like that has to be the first step mm-hmm. for everybody. Um, and then imposing some type of self-control, which would be brushing, doing the thing, doing whatever yeah, it yeah. is and kind of sticking to it. Mm. Um, self-care and then self-efficacy. And then, you know, 
having almost progressed to that. But I believe self-care, and I've talked about this previously, is like loving yourself, checking in with yourself, not like, oh, I'm going to get my nails done type of thing. But right. And I think that is like super important to making people stronger, to making people have self-efficacy, which is the ability to think that you can, you know, yes. like you can go and kind of conquer and do and start tearing down all these belief systems that are not true. So I yeah. really love that he took this approach because sounds like that's what you do. And that's what I do mm. in my quote unquote mindset driven <clears throat> or behaviors. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't start with the prescriptive, oh, you have diabetes or oh, you've been diagnosed with obesity or hypertension. Here's mm -mm. the guidelines for a low sodium diet or a low sugar diet. <laughs> yeah. You know, the question needs to become like, where are you right now? How can I meet you where you are right now? Whether it's, I don't feel loved. I don't feel um, like I'm worth anything. I'm going under a tremendous amount of stress then. You know what I'm saying? That stuff yeah, needs yeah. to be dealt with first because no one is going to be able to eat a vegetable plate or whatever you want them to eat or take a medication if you're a provider. Mm -hmm. And with, with all this other stuff going on in their head, they'll be able to do it temporarily because you've asked them to do it. And then they're ultimately, you're ultimately setting them up for failure because this other stuff has to be at least dealt with first, in my opinion. So I, I love that story. And I love that you met somebody like that who helped you go through this journey. And, and I think it's really important that we acknowledge like this concept of a self-made person is a myth, right? <laughs> and, and it's probably the, one of the most harmful and pervasive. And I think it's really pervasive, especially like in American culture where, <laughs> you know, like where I'm a self-made person, like asking for help is weakness. I'm like, no, <laughs> we live in, in basically a society that was perfectly engineered to create obese people. So yeah, we have, we, we create so much food and we have this yep. abundance of cheap junk calories. Yep. We have emotionally compelling, psychologically manipulative marketing conditioning. Um, 100%. You know, so we have all of these forces acting against us that are far more powerful than we are as an individual. And, and I, I, I have what I call like the hero mindset, healthy, educated, relentless offense. Like, and, and part of it is like, we have to understand what it is we're up against yeah, and and like there's a reason why because and and this is a kettle of fish, but if you know we try to put so much onus on the individual and say this is your individual failing that you got here, and I'm like, well, there's a real systemic like there's a societal and a systemic level that we're not addressing that's like pushing people into into where they're at. So we have to know what we're up I against. Um, <clears throat> we have technology that has made, you know, we can get everything from the, the, the push of a button or the tap of a screen. So we have all these forces acting against us. Now, why, if we know this, we realize it is not weakness to get all the help you can. This is hard yeah. stuff, losing weight and keeping it off. Yeah. Get all the help and support you can. Gather as many people around you as you can that are helpful and supportive because it's, I, I say trying to fix yourself is like trying to bite your own teeth. It doesn't work because yeah. you're stuck in your own head. Yeah. No, I agree. <clears throat> I 100% agree. And so one of the things that we talk about too at Fresh Try and what I saw in my bariatric practice as a bariatric surgeon, it was very similar to what you were saying, me, not me, in the sense that I think sometimes bariatric surgery was so difficult on people because it was a not me experience. Like right. so much stuff has changed in their body. And now they're having to stick to this really um, restrictive diet. And they're like, who, who is this person, you know? And 
sometimes I wonder if some of the weight regain is just this not me experience because they don't feel like they're the person that they used to be. And so, and they don't recognize the food they now have to eat. And it's just so many things that go, go along with that. So it's much better to do it probably the way you did it. Um, than to have something super dramatic that's not that cannot be if it cannot be sustainable. How long did it take you to lose that hundred pounds? By the well, way, well, I, I joke <laughs> that I've lost like six hundred because like I lost and gained the weight um, multiple times. Um, but really, probably to lose it like for good. So I think about twenty seventeen was when um, like I you know I really sort of started in earnest like losing it successfully, and it probably yeah. took until. Uh, about about 18 months. Yep. And, but really like my weight loss journey spanned probably almost like seven or eight years. Yep. And so I would say, you know, some people say, like, how, how long take you to lose a hundred pounds? I'm like, well, actually probably like seven years. <laughs> and <clears throat> it's like, if I knew now, or sorry, if I knew then what I know now, obviously it wouldn't have taken nearly, nearly so long. But I yeah. think if I could draw a positive out of it is because I struggled for so long and I, tr- I even ran a supplement store. So I had access to every nutritional supplement on the planet and I'm a former, yeah. former um, chemist and nanotech researcher. I have a background in the supplement industry and none of the, you know, so I tried so many things to solve my problem <laughs> that, that it, it led me to the place where this was like the, the only thing that actually worked <clears throat> and it, it shifted how I, I work with people dramatically, you know, and, uh, so really in a big old nutshell, like it probably took about 18 months to, to really lose yeah. the weight for good, but yeah. it was about seven or eight years of like struggle to get to the place where, where I now was at. And, and I share that because I think we've been marketed to like the, you know, 21 day fix, the 30 day yeah, challenge. Yeah, exactly, uh, man. That's why I asked you. Cause that stuff is not <laughs> realistic. Like, no. and, and I just wanted you to share that. So Be- I agree. Y- y- to become like a new person because that's essentially what you have to do is become a transformed yep. person. Correct. And like, I look back at, uh, you know, I wrote a letter called dear old me and it was yeah. actually a really kind of an emotional letter to write because there was an element of grieving of me letting go of this person I used yep. to be. It's kind of like a metaphorical death. It sounds dramatic, yep. but I was letting, because believe it or not, there were some positives about being over 300 pounds. Like, you know, the freedom to eat whatever I want, I guess. It was probably yeah. like the biggest thing. Obviously, there were many, many drawbacks in terms yeah, of like my correct. physical discomfort of existence. Yeah, but I, to, I had to acknowledge there were some good things that I kind of had to let go of. Yeah, there was some. I was the jolly fat guy. I was the life of the party. Hey, every John's here. Like you know, encouraging yeah. everybody to overeat so I didn't you know to kind of mask my own disordered eating behaviors and things. Like so there. So I think sometimes we need to acknowledge that this is. While it's it's going to be a positive change, it's not 100% perfectly positive making this change. There are some yep. good things that we have to leave behind and maybe even grieve or mourn the, yep. the loss of those things, the death of those things in our life, as dramatic as that might sound. No, I don't think it's dramatic at all. You know, I'm a bariatric surgeon and so we um, always call like right a couple weeks before their surgery, I make them go on a liquid diet mm-hmm. and, I, and we call it the last meal. So it's like, you can have one more meal. And then it's two weeks liquid diet and then you're getting your surgery and that's it. Like you cannot go back. And with bariatrics, you'll get sick, like physically sick, end up back in the hospital mm-hmm. if you start going back to some of the bad foods. So the, literally my my patients are the last supper, the last yeah. meal, because it's like a death for them because yeah. uh, for a lot of them it is. And if 
it, one of the things that I need to start educating more, and thank you for pointing this out, is they have to let go of the old self, the me, yeah. not me. Because what happens is if they try to hold on to that, the success rate, even after a bariatric surgery, goes down because yeah. they're still looking at themselves and seeing the old self, and they've got to let a lot of that stuff go. I've had patients who still see their old size in the mirror, and they're not even close yeah. to that size anymore, or <clears throat> they're upset because they can't have whatever used to get that dopamine release before, and they can't have it anymore because they'll just get sick. And so they almost start mourning or grieving old things. And that's probably something you need to start incorporating in general, big picture. When somebody has a lot of weight to lose, to, to almost write a letter to your old self. You know what I'm saying? I, I love that idea <laughs> because there truly is a mourning and a grieving of what you can no longer do anymore, but that's okay, right? Because there's yeah. there's so many new things that you can do. Like my patients can ride rides with their kids they couldn't fit on before. Yeah, and, yeah. And now go upstairs <clears throat> without being short of breath and take the stairs at work, park farther from the groceries. There's like so many other things, but when you fixate on all the things that you don't have anymore, you can't do it. Can just lead you into a, a spiral, you know. And, and yeah. you know, I like I I very often say that weight loss is a doorway; it's not a destination. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, you know, obviously weight loss is going to improve the health of almost anyone that undertakes it, but it's never really about that number on the scale. It's mm -hmm. about quality of life. And the numbers kind of like that we might have in our head around weight loss is really just a placeholder for a future that we feel it's going to enable us to live in. You know, yeah. whether we can say like, I feel comfortable in my skin or I can go shopping in my closet again, or I can play with my kids or, or, or yeah. go hiking or, so it's, it's, really like gaining the sense of freedom because like our, our physical ability to move and our mobility is a huge part of, of freedom. And so weight loss, you know, because I, I think sometimes it's, it's like, it's not in vogue to talk about weight loss and there's the pendulum is almost like swung too far the other way where it's like, you should just love yourself as you are and you don't have to change. Yeah, I agree. I and agree. Like, that's, not, that, that's obviously that's backlash against like I hate to use language, but like toxic diet culture, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really don't like that language, but I understand why it exists. But weight loss is really about the opportunity to experience life more fully and yeah. leaving behind this identity that's slowly suffocating you, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thank you, Coach John, so much for being on the the podcast. This was very enlightening. This was very confirmatory of what I believed in, in, in kind of practice and preach. So I really appreciate getting your take on it, talking about your journey. Do you um, train a lot of people virtually or is this in person or how do you uh, see your clients? Online. Yeah, 100% uh, online. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And then is there a website that everybody yeah. can go find you at? Uh, freedomnutritioncoach.com. And uh, I run a program called Lifestyle 180. And what I like to say is we, we marry the science of metabolism with the psychology of behavior change and the compassion of human connection. That's, <laughs> that's the three pillars really of what we do. And the way that I work with people is in a collaborative fashion. So I say you are the expert of your internal environment yep, and your life experience. Exactly. Good. And so we're going to work together like two experts. So my goal is to help people re reverse engineer their healthy lifestyle. And we do that in a step-by-step -step fashion where maybe we start with a principle 
but and I say, I want you to try to employ this principle and then I want you to figure out where it works, where it doesn't and Correct. how we need to adjust to suit you. And so I give the individual an active hand in shaping their lifestyle because at the end of it, I don't want to like, let's say we, we finish working together. I don't want them to fall to pieces. I want them Correct. to leave empowered, educated, Correct. empowered and say like, I actively had a hand in shaping this. And yep. so it's a really, I think it's still quite a unique approach in, in the world of weight loss, but it's obviously this is my passion and my life's work. So yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Thank you so much for being on the show. We'll definitely put that info in our show notes on how to reach you and where they can go to get this great help. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Mm -hmm. I hope this message continued to empower you and inspire you to continue on your health transformation journey. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe or download if you like what you're hearing. The goal is to continue to inform you and educate you as you transform on your healthcare journey and show you different paths to take in order to get you to your goal. Until next time, thank you.